Lord, this is what gives us great hope that you are at work within us because all power and glory belong to you. Lord, would you manifest that in our hearts and minds and our lives in Jesus' name, amen. We're taking a break today, this morning, actually for the next several weeks since I won't be uh, here, from the book of Psalms to kind of look at something that I think would fit uh, Father's Day. And we're going to do something a little bit similar to what we did on Mother's Day where we looked at the Lord's Prayer through the lens of a mother. Well, now we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer through the lens of a father. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 where we'll look at verses 5 through 13, which is the Lord's Prayer, the instructions that Jesus gives to His disciples on how to pray. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. This is God's Word. Please have a seat. Well, happy Father's Day to those of you who are fathers. And of course, if you're not a father, you have a father. So it's a relevant prayer (laughs) for fathers. It is interesting to talk to other men about upcoming Father's Day and to kind of sense the reaction. And and I don't sense it's all that different from some of the mothers and their reaction. and, And while we like the idea that we honor our fathers, the fact that there's a Father's Day also reminds us, if, if you are a father, of our own shortcomings as we think about, well, what have we done as a father? Have we been a good father? Have we been leading our children as we uh, intended to, as we desire, as the Lord has instructed us? And we think about our own fathers, and of course, it's, it's easy to reflect upon those good times, but it's also easy to fall back and remember the, the hard times, the ways in which our father fell short as well. And so, Father's Day can be filled with a little bit of a mixed bag when we think about it, but the reality is I'm glad that we still have a day that recognizes fathers. Fathers is an important role to be a father, and if you were to listen to the direction that our culture has been heading for some time, you wouldn't, you wouldn't remember that. You might forget that, as fathers are, tend to be you know, pushed aside as, as, as reduced you know, even as you watch uh, children's shows, the father is often depicted as the one who doesn't really know what's going on, the one who 
the children need to be somehow rescuing, or fathers are simply absent. We live in a culture where increasingly more and more fathers are just absent. With the rise of single motherhood to not even knowing who perhaps the father is, to the denigration of the role of man as being viewed simply as the evil, powerful patriarch that has held his family and others kind of in, uh, in a negative place. But the reality is, we need fathers, and our, our culture needs to recognize the significance of the role that a fathers, uh, the fathers have, both in the church and in our society as a whole. So, I wanted to look at the prayer, uh, the Lord's Prayer today, as we specifically through the eyes of how does this help us as fathers? Because if you think about your role as a father, and someday those of you who aren't fathers might be a father, those men out there, what is it that you most want to accomplish as a father? And uh, I would suggest to you that you want to leave a legacy behind for your kids. You know, as Mike, that may not be what you're saying when your kid's in one and three, you just want to get through the day without killing them, right? <laughs> but when you have, especially as your kids have, have grown up, you've seen them go through many of the ages, and now, like I do, I'm going to have adult children, and one thing I want more than that, I want to have, know that I have left a legacy for my children that will endure long after I'm gone. Hopefully a legacy that I've left them that they can pass on to their children as well. We want to be able to leave a legacy, but that requires that we know something about what is our job as a father? What kind of legacy are we meant to lead, uh, to leave? So, I want to look at the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, through this lens, so men, we can understand something about what our goal is for our kids. How do we leave this legacy that we so desire to leave them? So, as we think about this prayer, which is a fascinating prayer as you kind of turn it and look at it from different angles. One, perhaps first and foremost, the Lord's Prayer reminds us that as fathers, we have a goal. We have a very important goal. And you see that, of course, unfolding in the opening, the opening lines of the prayer itself. But that's, that's an important thing for men, I think, to understand, because men tend to be goal-driven. We tend to be mission-oriented right? Give a guy a project and you've kept him busy and happy for a long time. That's, what we, that's just the way we're wired. It's what we like to do. And it was interesting, if, not long after I moved here, someone gave me a book um, called Why Men Hate Going to Church. And anybody else in the congregation read that or seen that book? It's a fascinating book. It talks about trying to address the epidemic of why is it that we see the church filled with more women than men? Why do men have some aversion to going to church? And the theory was interesting that he put forth. Uh, he says that the, the author's name was David Moreau, and he, he talks about it like this. He says, the church has a spiritual thermostat that's set in a way that suits women. Uh, by the way, we have a thermostat set at our home that's also set to suit one particular woman in the house. Uh, it's funny, it's like I'll come in and say, man, it's really cold in here. She says, it's not cold in here. And then independently later in the day, each one of the kids comes in and says, gosh, it's cold in here. And she looks at me like, did you pay them to say that? And, and uh, sorry, I didn't tell you about that. <laughs> but 
he has this interesting theory that the spiritual thermostat of the church is set in a way that suits women. You think, well, what on earth does that mean? Uh, well, the reality is that women and men, whether our culture wants to acknowledge it or not, we are wired a little bit differently. And that's a good thing. We need each other in that regard. And women tend to be more wired or better at having, uh, engaging in relationships, engaging in kind of the drama of life. I mean, this is an area where they tend to thrive more so in men. And again, these are generalizations. That's not necessarily means if you're a woman that you fit everything I'm saying here as a stereotype. But in general, that's the idea. And as a result, what we see the church often focusing on that makes the that hits this particular spiritual thermostat is building relationships. Building relationships. We've even been talking about that in our session in our, our, our elder and deacon meetings is, is we need to find a way to do a better job of helping people build relationships with each other in the church to establish those connections. And, and certainly, by the way, those things are of vital importance. But if you think about it in terms of the spiritual thermostat, Yes, guys, we need relationships, and we enjoy relationships with other men, but for us, building relationships is different than the way women build relationships. We don't necessarily form them in the same way, and the way in which guys tend to form relationships is by engaging in activities together that have a goal. There is, the, in other words, there is a difference between developing relationships where you're you're standing face to face, and the whole goal is to sit across from each other and have engage and talk about each other and what's going on in each other's life. It's another thing to engage in a conversation where you're working alongside each other, side by side, towards a particular goal. And if and if as a church per se, our mission is to help people build connections by having face to face relationships. Well, that tends to fit the spiritual thermostat that's geared more towards the women than the men because we have this idea of mission-oriented. Now, it is interesting if you look in the, the case of the church and when it was established, when we, especially when we think about the New Testament church, what, we have to ask the question, was it like this? I mean, certainly relationships are encouraged. I mean, that's a central aspect of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. It means to live in with each other together, doing life alongside each other. But when you, when you read the pages of the New Testament, what you find is the names of men tend to dominate the space. Now, that's not to say that there were more men in the church than there were women. We know that there were lots of women in the church, and some are mentioned by name. We have Priscilla, we have Phoebe, we have the women who supported the disciples as Jesus was engaged in His ministry. I mean, vitally important. So it's not as though there's more men than women, but the men's names are the ones that we tend to read about the most. Because what the New Testament was talking about is the establishment of a church which has a very specific mission. That's why the church was established to exist. It was given a mission. I mean, think about when Jesus first called the church into being. He says, Peter, on this rock, this rock of the confession that I am the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, what does that imply? If the gates of hell, the gates are which are a defensive fortress, what does that imply that the church itself is doing? It is marching on the offensive to do battle against the gates of hell. 
There is a mission implied there. And when you look at what's happening in the New Testament, what are the men doing? They're going from place to place. They're engaging in the mission of spreading the gospel, the proclaiming the good news to all the nations of the world, establishing other churches. So there is this mission-oriented nature to what the church is doing. There's a phrase that, that, that's used to describe it. Um, that we find in the book of Acts, when the adversaries comment on what's happening in Thessalonica, for example, the mob was stirred up and accused those men of turning the world upside down. I know if you like to think about guys in terms of engaging in missions and even about the, the different kinds of movies that men and women like to watch, when, when you guys go out on a date, you men and women, who often gets to pick the movie? And if you pick the movie, you find you might have, you have two theaters to go to, and a woman might want to go to this one, and a man might want to go to this one, so you have to compromise at times and go to different ones. And those movies that are, that are engaged in the drama of life, it's not that men, as we don't enjoy those, we certainly do, but if we're going to pick one, we're going to pick the one where they're blowing stuff up. <laughs> because why do they blow stuff up? Well, because they're trying to save the world. And I'm going to tell you, men... That's what you were designed to do. <laughs> and that's, guess what? That's the mission of the church, is to go and save the world, to go and beat down, prevail against the gates of hell. So it is a, it is a job that should be drawing men into the church. And as a consequence, when we, th- when we talk about the spiritual thermostat of the church being set more towards the women, and I'm talking about all across our nation, what we see we've done is the, the church itself has lost sight of the fact that we have a very intentional mission. And the sad reality of that is that translates down to men in particular, who men, if they're a believer, don't always understand what their life is set to be about, that they too have a mission. Men, you have a mission. What is your mission? Well, let's look at the Lord's Prayer, and how does it start? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's your mission. That is the whole reason why you exist. It's why it's the very first petition in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. If you think about those who have our children, who studied the catechism, or those of you who know your Westminster Shorter Catechism, and I ask you the question, what is the chief end of man? You would reply, good job, you guys know that. For those of you who didn't hear it, it's man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So it's stated right there, what does the chief end mean? It means this is your mission. It's why you exist in life. You exist to glorify God. You exist to see the name of God hallowed up and lifted up. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then the next line, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a mission. When Jesus came and announced his ministry and the gospel of Mark introduces him, what does he say? His his words are, repent, why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is coming. That's the mission, is to bring the kingdom of God to this earth. Now, last week we were looking at Psalm 82. And if you recall, we were telling that 
where does that fit in the story of things? Psalm 82 is God coming into this divine counsel. He's pronouncing judgment on those rulers who have not governed well. We went back to look at the reality and that at the time when the languages were confused and the nations were created, Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 32 that he divided up the nations according to the number of the sons of God. There is this aspect of God disinherited the nations at that time. And it adopted for himself one nation, Abraham, who would be a nation. He said, you will be my people and I will be your God. So he's disinherited all the nations, made one nation for himself, with the ultimate goal is that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So there is this goal where he's disinherited the nations, he's adopted one nation for himself, but the ultimate goal is that one day he will re-inherit, take back all the nations. And that's what the work of Jesus is doing in the mission. The kingdom of God is coming to bear on all the nations of the world until finally he has brought all the world under his, foot, under his feet and he hands back the kingdom to the Father. That's the mission. So when we have a mission, men... We have to think about our mission, our reason for existence is that we are seeking to see the kingdom of God come. Now, if you think about that in terms of, of what you do on a day-to-day basis and you're, you're pursuing, when you listen to the things of the world, what does it say that we're to do? We're to engage in, and we're going to have a job, we have a career. But why do we have a job? Why do we have a career? That's the bigger question. Do we have a career? Do we get a job just so that we can make money? so that we can have more comforts, so that, in other words, so that we can build our own little kingdom, because that's, by the way, what building our own comforts is really ultimately about, or do we see our jobs as a means of building the kingdom of God? How is my work, my career, a part of building the kingdom of God? And I would, I would suggest to you that there's multiple ways in which that can be the case, one in which you can see your job See the fact that you're engaging in a job because you are mirroring what it looks like to be made in the image of God. What's the very first picture we have of God? He's working six days in creating the earth. If you think about the most fundamental thing, it says when you were created in the image of God, and the very first picture, image we have of God is Him as a worker working six days then by the very virtue of the fact that, men, you are working, you are reflecting His image to the rest of the world. You are, in one sense, bringing glory to God just by virtue of working. But then you think, well, what are we to be working towards? And of course, we have that cultural mandate that we read about in the Genesis, the the idea that you are to go and exercise dominion over all of creation. You're to bring it under the dominion of God Himself. So when you engage in different kinds of career, for example, if you're an accountant or you're an engineer and I say, I'm a pastor, and you say, well, we don't have anything in common, I'd say, absolutely we have things in common. We have just different roles to play. You have a mission. You want to leave a legacy for your kids, you have to demonstrate that you are working according to the mission that God has put you on. And of course, part of that mission is passing that on to your kids and the Perhaps the number one way that you pass that on to your kids is by modeling it to them. How do they see you working? And why do they see you working? Perhaps they can see you working in a career that helps to, to, to build civilization, but also how do they see you using the resources that God has granted you as a result of that career? Are you using them 
again, once again, to simply build your own kingdom, to build your own career, or using them to further the advancement of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying I want you to, you know, is that me? To give all, to give. Uh-oh. Okay. Anyway, try not to lose my place here. What are we talking about? How do you use your finances for the kingdom of God? I'm not saying go give all your money to the poor or to the church or something like that. There's clear instruction of what God has told us, of course. You know, give a tenth of what you make. It says this is, this, is for, this is reserved for me for the use of building up the kingdom of God, for of serving in the, of your exercise of worship. So there's parameters in which you can do that. And the question is, you're leaving a legacy for your kids. What do, you see your, what do your kids see you doing? And do you let them see that you're doing that? I mean, in so doing, you have to exercise a great measure of trust in God that He'll meet your needs, and even to do that. So there's this aspect of being kingdom-minded with your life, with your career, with your relationships, that we are meant to live on a very particular mission. Now, the second aspect this Lord's Prayer, I think, helps us as men in particular is that it reminds us that we are part of a brother, brotherhood, and I would say a gritty brotherhood. If you think of it like that. When you, pray the Lord's, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, how do you begin? What's the very first word in it? Our. This is not my individual relationship with God. I'm talking about our Father. Our Father who set us on a mission. We work alongside each other as brothers. We are a gritty brotherhood. And what do, what do we go on to say in the rest of the petitions of the prayer? Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. That's your mission. Now what do we pray? Give us this day our daily bread. So if you think about that petition, give us our daily needs. One, I'm, I'm, it's encouraging me to do it daily. But what's the reason why we're asking for our daily needs? Well, again, what is our mission? If we think about our mission as a, being a part of a, the Lord's army, if you want to think of it like that, you have a mission. Why does a, why does a soldier eat? Why does he have daily provision? So that he, can, he can be doing the work he has to do as a soldier. And I think we forget that sometimes when we're asking for our daily needs. We're asking for our daily needs to be met so we'll be comfortable, right? So that we'll have excess, so that we'll be able to think about our legacy in terms of finances or whatever it might be. We forget that the reason we're asking for our daily needs is so that we will have what we need in order to engage on the mission that God has given us. The next part, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What does that imply? Well, that implies, one, we're talking about our again, but it also implies that we have a clear intentional relationship alongside these brothers that we will not be successful in our mission if somehow there is conflict between the brothers. I mean, think about soldiers on the battlefield. Soldiers who have a conflict with themselves are going to be very hard-pressed to engage side by side, trusting one another to look out for each other's back when the enemy is pressing down. So we have a gritty brotherhood. And I mean, I haven't fought in any wars or been part of the army, but I've watched enough documentaries and stuff to know about there is a connection that people who have gone to war have with each other that can just be established in no other way. 
The brotherhood exists between soldiers who have fought side by side, have depended upon each other for life and death, have a bond that is very hard, if not impossible, to break. Why do men not have better connections with people in the church, other men in the church? Because we haven't engaged in the mission alongside, beside each other, where we've needed to depend upon each other. We're peripherally involved. We don't even recognize that when we come and gather to worship that it's part of preparing us for a grand mission that we've been given. But by the way, that is what the Lord's Prayer is about. We have a mission as a church. And men, you have been particularly wired to do things that are mission-oriented, to do things that are mission-oriented. And as we engage in the mission of the church alongside brothers, that we build those relationships. Again, this goes back to rather than the face-to-face relationships that, that women are better at establishing with each other, guys, we need that side-by-side. We're facing the project. We're facing the task. We're facing the mission, working side-by-side, learning to depend upon each other at our side. That's how we build strong relationships within the church. And I think the reason that we don't have them is we simply fail to understand that as a believer in God, you have a mission. What is our mission? In one sense, you could say, is to go and make disciples of all nations so that God's name will be glorified throughout all the earth. If there is a sense in which the, the Christ is now in the process of engaging, of conquering the nations, subduing the nations for himself, bringing his kingdom in, our job is to be the proclaimers of that good news. By the way, that was the gospel. I know we've, we've drilled down the gospel into one little piece that we'd like to elevate above all else of it, and that the gospel is that Jesus came and died on the cross for your sins, therefore you can be forgiven before God. And, and that is part of the gospel, but the gospel was a proclamation that the king has been put on the throne. That was the proclamation of the good news. That's the announcement that is going out. So when the people, when the disciples and others are going out into the world, they're announcing there is a king, and he is on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. Therefore, kiss the Son, put your faith in Him, find your refuge in Him in these trying times, because He's made it possible by dying on the cross that you might have a clear path to the Father, a clear entrance ticket to the kingdom. And our job as proclaimers of that truth is to go and collect those that belong to Him by proclaiming this good news. Which, again, this is why you see Paul addressing the, the church in Ephesus when he's, when he's telling about the armor of God. By the way, dads, did you get your armor all this morning? Did you get, your, did you get the basket, guys? Dads, did you get that basket? If you didn't get one, there's a basket out there. You're supposed to get a little thing of armor all to remind you that you have a mission. <laughs> to put on your armor. What is the armor of God? You know, first, first of all, what is your offensive weapon? Your offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit. It's the truth. It's this proclamation. That's your offensive weapon. That, of course, you're doing battle with an enemy. What's the, what's the defensive uh, pieces that you wear? You, put on a, you wear a shield. You hold a shield of faith. You put on a breastplate of righteousness. You put on a helmet of salvation, a belt of truth, and you put the sandals on your feet. Why? So that you can carry the good news into the enemy lands. We are on a mission. How do we exercise that mission today? Well, we have talked about how we take the gospel to, the, to our neighbors, 
Those that are in our spheres of influence, and we use that BLESS acronym as a way to do that, begin with prayer. Be praying for your neighbors, praying those in your sphere of influence. Learn to listen to them so that you can get to know them. Take time to eat together, to be around them. Find ways to serve them. And if you've been listening, hopefully you've found some ways in which you can serve them when you have, where they have genuine needs with the ultimate goal that you will have opportunity to share why it is you have a hope that speaks into their life in a way that addresses their need. That's the blessed strategy. You have a way to be engaged in the mission right now, right where you are. You don't have to go over to Amman, Jordan, although you can do that too, by the way. So dads, Think about the Lord's Prayer, just simply reminding you that you have a mission. And as you engage on that mission, you develop relationships with other brothers, gritty relationships that encourage you, that have your back, that help you pull you back when you've gone astray. I mean, I love that illustration. Think about if you saw your brother headed into a minefield and you knew it was there and he didn't, and you didn't call to him and warn him, well, he's going to blow himself up. But if you warn him, then you will have rescued him. Now, what does that look like in the Christian world of brotherhood? Well, it means when you see your brother wandering off away from the truth into an area of life that's, that's dark and sinful, it's your job to call him back so he doesn't blow himself up because we tend to do that <laughs> as men. We need brothers calling us back. Now, the, the last thing I want to end it with the great part of this prayer is that as soldiers, if we think of our soldiers on a mission in the battlefield with the gospel, the one hope that we have is that we know that we will not fail. It is a mission that has God's guarantee tied to it. Has God's guarantee. I want you to think about the way that we end the Lord's Prayer. I know it's not in the Matthew Uh, It's not in the ESV version of Matthew, but it is in the King James version because it's from from a manuscript that perhaps isn't necessarily the most reliable. And how do we end that prayer? We actually end it with every worship service. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. What is that telling us? It's saying God's power is supreme. Therefore, the mission that He has established will succeed. It's guaranteed. The outcome is already known. So when you go forth, you need not have fear that it will fail. You may find setbacks. You may find yourself engaged in battles. You may find yourself battled and bruised at times. But you know that you are part of a mission that will not fail. It will prevail. And it is is the ultimate good mission to restore paradise, to restore what was lost to bring about a new heavens and a new earth where we get to live in close proximity to the God Himself. That's your mission. That's your mission. That phrase can also be supported, that last phrase of the petition of the Lord's Prayer from 1 Chronicles 29, 11. I just want to look at that real briefly. It's a prayer of David as he concludes his time as king and prepares to hand it over to Solomon. This is how Solomon needed to be reminded of this prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. 
Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. This is our reassurance as men to be engaged on this mission that we will not fail. How do you endure the hardship after hardship when everything seems to go up against you and it seems like everything is lost? Well, you remember this truth, this reality. All power comes from God. All strength is God's to give. All majesty and glory belong to Him. His mission will not fail. And perhaps the most clearest guarantee that we have that is Jesus Himself, when He faced death on the cross and did die and was put into the grave. I mean, that's the greatest enemy that's ever to be faced. But three days later, what happened? He rose in victory, in victory over death. It is a a powerful mission that brings together people in tight brotherhood, especially men, even men who perhaps in other cases wouldn't get along. (laughs) I mean, wasn't the message of the cross to go out and bring people who were once Jews and Greeks together, who would never eat together in each other's homes, and now they're considering each other family? Those who were slave and those who were free? Those who had all kinds of different tribal allegiances were overcome by this grander mission that they've been put upon. That's what we have. And fathers, I suggest to you that that as we seek to engage and re-engage in this mission, in case you've taken a break or not known you're a part of it, let your kids see this. Help them understand why you're here and what you're about. For Jesus has called us to a great calling. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the mission that you've called us to be part of, of seeing your kingdom come to this earth, seeing your will be done on this earth as it's already being done in heaven, seeing you lifted up as king, seeing you in all of your glory spread across the globe. Father, I pray that as you've done a work in our hearts, so you would do in the lives and the hearts of those around us. Help us to be bold. Help us to be participating in this brotherhood, in this mission, to see the gospel proclaimed across the world. And Lord, we pray for our children, that as they see this mission, that they understand that they too are being prepared to be part of this mission. That that is the legacy we hand down to them as inheritors of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would remind us of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.